All right, so today we're going to continue going through the book of Galatians. Um, we're going to continue walking through it and uh, breaking it apart um, in sections of Scripture and just walking through it to see what God has to say to us through the book of Galatians. Um, what's crazy is is that this book was written somewhere around 2,000 years ago, um, and, and as you begin walking through it and really finding the principles that Paul is teaching to the church at Galatia, it's extremely and utterly relevant to today and uh, where we live. Um, and it's especially beneficial for us as Christians living in the context that we live in here in Springfield in what is known as the buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, it, it's even great because at Missouri State, where I go, the professors there um, affectionately refer to this place as the Bible Belt and just so lovingly talk about all the people that live here that are so religious um, which is obviously very sarcastic. They, th- there's a lot of bad things to be said about uh, the Bible Belt at Missouri State uh, many times. But um, typically the word like uh, Bible Belt or Christian from the professors up front comes with like a, an eye roll or a sigh or uh, just this look that you get. Um, it's, it's great. But um, <laughs> we live in a very religious culture. And what I mean by that is... Um, here in Springfield, if you don't go to church, you're not a Christian. If you don't wear certain clothes, you're not a Christian. If you don't listen to certain music, you're not a Christian. If you don't have a certain theology, you're not a Christian. If you don't read a certain Bible translation, um, you're not a Christian. Um, and and what's crazy is is that Paul back in Galatians is speaking against these Judaizers who have come in and said, not only do you need Jesus for salvation, not only do you need Jesus and faith in Him to be righteous, but you also need the law. You need circumcision. You need something else. And the truth of the matter is is that what the Judaizers were preaching is is very much like the culture we live in today, where these other things that we need to do to be Christians really don't make us Christians. In fact, um, they though they may be good in what they are, Paul says that without faith, um, without the gospel, they're actually bad things. That they actually, as we'll talk about later today, bring a curse upon us, a divine curse, that you are not blessed because you go to church, you are not blessed because you read your Bible, you're not blessed because you pray, but you're blessed because of faith in Christ. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. I mean, as you look at Paul, don't you see the emotion that's coming from him as he's defending the truth of the gospel, the truth of this matter, that it's not religious things that we do that save us, but it is Christ alone. As he comes to the Galatians, and, and uh, you just see exclamation point after exclamation point, and I feel like as you read through Galatians, you just see him like getting all angry and ripping up paper as he's writing and like throwing it away because it's not what he wanted to say, and you just see the passion that comes because the real matter here is, is people's souls. It's eternity. I mean, as Paul is preaching and, and writing this letter... He understands that these things that people are doing are good and they may have a good and current effect for us here today, but in eternity, they make no difference. They make no difference at all. Um, So last week, we came to this place where Paul more or less lets the Galatians just kind of have it. Um, Oh, foolish Galatians is what he comes at them with. Um, He's taken all this time to remind them of his authority from God his authority from the Scriptures, his authority from the church in Jerusalem, 
Um, he, he reminds them of the message that he originally preached, what the gospel really is. He goes through all of this. And then last week we get to a place where he comes and, and he reminds them of their experience. That when the Spirit came and when they had faith in Christ, he reminds them that were you saved by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did the Spirit that you were given come through works of the law or by hearing with faith? He reminds them of the experience they had with the with Christ in, in faith. And now as we get into today's text, which is uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, that's where we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to see that Paul is now going to go back to the Old Testament. And he's not only going to prove to them that faith is what saves you um, because of their experience, but also because that is what the Old Testament taught from the very beginning. That scriptures points to faith in Christ as the only way to salvation. Um, and, and that's what we're going to be looking at. And as he, as he is writing this, as Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, remember that he is not writing this to the unbeliever, to the atheist, to the bigotrous person who is against Christianity, but rather he is writing it to the person who does pray, who does read their Bible, who does go to church, who does profess himself to be a Christian, who, who may call Jesus Lord. But what he will come to say is that they're under a curse if they don't really have Jesus. Um, so as we um, get into this text, I, I would ask you guys to really remember and, and, and be cautious of the danger that comes with being a Christian. The danger that comes from living in an area like we live in and a culture that we live in. Remember that it is faith alone and Christ alone that saves you. And listen to what Paul has to say and recognize that he is speaking to us as churchgoers. Remember that as we go through this text today. Um, so we're going to start in verse 10. Um, and Paul here in verse 10 um, is actually quoting um, Moses from Deuteronomy. Um, but th- this is where we'll start in verse 10. And he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And we're going to go into the beginning part of the next verse, and it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So Paul just pretty much bluntly comes out and says it, everyone who who relies on works of the law is under a curse. Uh, He doesn't like, I love this about Paul, he doesn't like kind of beat around the bush or get to a really nice, fruity, happy thing. He just more or less punches you in the face with it. That anybody who relies on the works of the law is, is under a curse. Um, and there's an interesting point to make here because Paul, in quoting, quoting uh, Deuteronomy and quoting Moses here, he uh, he's saying that those of you who who follow the, it's not those of you who don't follow the curse that or follow the law that are under a curse, but rather those of you who do follow the law that are under a curse. And the interesting point is here is that Moses in Deuteronomy, and I'll, I'll quote it for you. It says, "Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of." this law by doing them. So Paul here is saying, those of you who do the works of the law are cursed. But Moses, in who he's quoting, says, those of you who don't do them are cursed. But he's not contradicting himself here. And I think that's an important point to make. Because what he's doing is he's actually trying to make an ironic point. He's trying to say, no, in fact, when uh, whenever you try to follow the law in your attempts to follow the law, all you're really doing is... Is failing. Um, and this is true because in our attempt to follow the law, it is not the law that is inherently bad, but we are. 
if you remember back just a little bit, it says it wasn't until Peter started keeping the dietary laws of the Jews that he was found to be out of step with the gospel. And it wasn't until the Judaizers, Judaizers, I'll say that right, Judaizers began saying circumcision was necessary, that they were out of step, that their conduct was out of step with the gospel. It wasn't until they started doing these things that they were out of step with the gospel. The point is, is that we could do all of these things. We could live up to the law perfectly and we could do all these great things, but we would still fail. And Jesus makes the point of this when he talks to the Pharisees, when he says, you know, you have done all these things even to the point of tithing out of your spice rack, but you have forgotten the weightier issues of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness, that we miss the spirit of the law even when we try to follow the law. And in the whole Old Testament is just point of this. The whole Old Testament is God giving the law and the Israelites continuing to break the law. <laughs> I mean, it's very obvious nobody can keep it because for thousands of years you watch the Israelites continue to fail and fail and fail and fail and God continues to show them grace and mercy and grace and mercy, which is really the point of the law. We'll find out later in Galatians that the point of the law, Paul will say, is to show us that we're all sinners, that we can't do it. Um, I mean, the law itself isn't bad. If you really think about the law, don't murder somebody, don't don't steal stuff, don't worship another god, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Uh, those things aren't bad, are they? I mean, I wouldn't say they're bad. I'd say they're very good things, actually. Um, but what Paul is saying here is that we can't do it. We cannot live up to the law. We We can't. Uh, Paul says in his letter to, in Romans 3, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. Um, and and it, so what it is is that as we try to live and do these things and follow the law in our what we think is righteousness, but what Paul deems as unrighteousness, all we're doing is digging ourselves a grave. I mean, we just continue to... Uh, we're trying in a way to substitute ourselves for God. We're saying that I don't need God to save me. I don't need His grace and mercy. I don't need those things... Because I can take these good things that I've done, I can follow the law, I can do these great things, and I can become this great person. I can, I can save myself. I mean, isn't that somewhat of the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden? That you can become a god, that you can do it, that, that all God is trying to keep you from is becoming a good person on your own, becoming what, what he doesn't want you to become? I mean, isn't that the lie that Satan told us? And so as we continue to follow the law, all we're doing is really breaking it. Um, and I, it makes sense to the Galatians because the law was an issue back then. I mean, we don't really have the Mosaic law that we follow and, you know, touch the door frame and put the little thing on our head that has the scriptures in it. We don't really do that. So it doesn't seem to really apply to us. But the truth is, is that here and today, all we really have for justification, for salvation, is either the law or Christ just like the Jews had. That we can either live up to the law perfectly or we can have faith in Christ. So we're left with the exact same problem that the Jews were left with. Can you follow the law perfectly or do you need Christ for your justification and salvation and righteousness? And the truth is, is that just like the Jews, we can't do it. I mean, we cannot live up to the law. So instead of running to the law, what we need to do then is turn our back on on, on what the law seems to provide for us and run to Jesus and run to his arms for, for his righteousness and for his substitution on the cross.
Now, popular culture and uh, psychology would say that hearing that we are bad innately, that we are bad people really down to the core of us is probably not the most popular message. And I'm sure everybody here loves hearing, you're a bad person. I mean, isn't that just great to hear? You are a terrible person, and uh, you deserve hell. I mean... That's the truth of the, the, the scriptures, but nobody likes hearing that. And popular culture today would say, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Um, and, and thinking about this, I was reminded of a book I read in junior high called The Lord of the Flies. And I don't know if any of you guys have read that. Um, I remember reading it and hating it because we had to read it in school and because you have to read stuff, it just stinks. But looking back on it, um, there was something very profound in that um, experience in, in reading that. Because the whole point that the author is trying to make in the book is determining what really is the essence and nature of, of mankind. And so what happens is these boys are in this plane, um, just a whole bunch of boys. The plane wrecks on a de- deserted island, and they're left with no grown-ups, no rules, no anything. It's just them. They, and for a while, the kids love it. I mean, there's a lot of innocence and a lot of fear as well, but they love not having rules. They can go do whatever they want. They can, you know, eat run around, do whatever, eat whatever they want, stay up as late as they want. You know, all those great things that you want to do as a small child that just really stink when you get older. Um, <laughs> but uh, but what happens is, is as the time continues on the island, you begin to see this savagery come out in some of them, and actually the vast majority of them. And you begin to see this, this reminiscence of evil just come out. And in the end, they actually end up killing one of the other boys on there. And as gross as this is, they eat him. I mean, it gets to the point where they they act out and they kill another one of them that was in the exact same spot they were because they wanted to. And I remember reading this and hearing my teacher say, so the point is is that man is innately bad. And that's what the author was trying to say. And I remember, as a, even as a junior high kid, that rubbing just the wrong way. I'm not a bad person. I mean, I do really good things. I don't cuss. I don't hit people. I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't. I read my Bible. I go to church. I do these good things. I'm not a bad person. And I'm wrong. <laughs> I was very wrong in that. But it just it rubs us the wrong way, right? I mean, uh, in business school, we deal a lot with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, um, and. Uh, Carl Rogers, who's also a popular psychologist. And what they say is, is that man, once they, once they get rid of all those things that are kind of holding them back, once all our needs are met, once we're fed, once our, um, ego has been stroked a little bit, once our self-esteem is intact, we can become all we want to be. That we can be a great person. That within us, at the depths of us, is something great that can come out. All we need really is all these things to be pushed to the side. And you can become this great person. You can, you can reach self-actualization. And Paul here very bluntly and very statedly says no. That you can't. That you are cursed. Whether you do the law or whether you don't do the law, you're cursed. And that's really the issue here. A divine curse or a divine blessing? And so understanding this, we'll go on, and we'll go on to verse 12. Um, and he kind of gives us a little bit something, some hope to look towards. In verse 12, um, continuing on, he says, For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, Paul here is, uh, once again, quoting from Habakkuk. 
Um, and he is, he is saying that you can only be found righteous if you live by faith. And the law, once again repeating himself, cannot find you righteous because it has no faith. There's, there's no faith in the law, it says. Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews says it a little bit of a different way, but hits the same point. He says that without faith, no one can please God. That we cannot please God without faith. So if the law has no faith, then really we can't please God through the law. I mean, it's, it's just what it says. Um, but as we'll continue on further, if you live by faith and you live a righteous life through faith, you will actually receive the blessing of the Spirit, which is salvation. So the question then is, if if this is such an important issue, if it's the difference between a divine blessing and a divine curse, whether you follow the law or whether whether you live by faith, um, let's really look at what faith is. Um, now, faith is not just some intellectual knowledge or understanding that something is true, but a dependence and trust in it. Faith says, not only do I believe something is true and right, but I relinquish control over my ability to make it able to satisfy or fulfill its purpose even more. Faith says, I have nothing to add or give to this thing, and it will accomplish all that it's supposed to do. And this is the scary thing about faith, that in faith we lose control over what happens. So as I sit in that chair, if I have faith in that chair, I relinquish all control whether or not it's going to hold me up. I just have faith that it will. And I sit down. And this is the point that Paul is really trying to make. The law says, I have control. But faith says, God is in control of it all. Um, and this was the message of the Judaizers. Um, they weren't living by faith. They were saying the Gentiles needed faith in Christ and circumcision or works of the law. They wanted control in some way over their righteousness, over their salvation, over their goodness. They wanted to to have some kind of control over it. They wanted something they could do to say, I had something to do with who I am. But just to repeat it one more time, the law does not make you a good person. Christ makes you a good person. So living by faith and, and not faith in ourselves and our ability to follow the law or faith in the law itself because both reek of pride and control, but rather having a humble faith in Christ and his satisfying work on the cross is the way to live a righteous life. Um, and this is really the, the what of the whole question here. So what is the problem? We can either live by the law or live by faith and we can either be found to have a divine curse or divine blessing, which is the spirit and salvation, or divine curse, which is hell and damnation for eternity, right? Um, and now Paul, and I love what we're getting ready to get into. This this next part of Galatians is what, it makes me jittery, and it makes me happy, and it makes me, I don't know, just crazy. Because this, when, when you get this part of, of the gospel, when you get this part of Galatians, when you get this part of what Jesus did on the cross... The gospel, if you if you just take this in and meditate on it, the gospel explodes. That that there is real depth and richness and beauty in the gospel when you understand this next part of the text. That when Paul Paul has given us the what, he never leaves us with just what to do, but why and how to do it. 
he always leaves us with this. And, and this why and how is, is incredible. Um, Saint Aug- this is what I think St. Augustine spoke of as the sovereign joy. This is what, why Paul and Philippians could look back and say, I count my, all the things I've done as a Pharisee, all the things I've lived up to, all the things I've done, all the things I was, all the things that people saw me as, I count them all as loss, as dung, as garbage, as rubbish, in order that I might know Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this is what it says in verse 13. If I can see it real quick. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isn't that, I mean, isn't there something beautiful in that? Christ became a curse for us. Uh, John Stott, um, who's a really great English theologian, totally recommend reading his books, um, just recently died, but has left a legacy that will change, um, honestly, Britain and England forever. But uh, he wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, which is probably the one of the greatest works on the cross. Um, and this is what he says about this passage. Speaking of verses 10 through 14, all the, what, what we just read, he says, These verses constitute one of the clearest expositions of the necessity, meaning, and consequence of the cross. Paul expresses himself in such stark terms that some commentators have not been able to accept what he writes about the curse that Christ became for us. Um, and this is true. If you read um, a bunch of different commentators, a lot of people want to um, either just step away from the fact that Paul just said that Christ became a curse, um, or they want to soften it and make it say something else um, that's not quite what he meant when he said that. But to get rid of the fact that Christ became a curse actually destroys the gospel. And very obviously, since Paul wrote this whole book to defend the gospel, that is probably not what he was in in. in writing this trying to do um, so we have to first understand what does it mean when Paul says that Christ became became a curse for us um, so whenever God spoke of um, whenever God gave law in the Old Testament it always came in the terms of do this law and you will receive the blessing or don't do this law and you will receive the curse kind of like I showed you in, we talked about in Deuteronomy that you do these things and you will be blessed. Don't do these things, and I will curse you. Um, and it's covenantal language, um, that as he speaks, he is creating a bond or a covenant between him and his people. And it's and anytime you see covenantal language, it's relationship language. And so as God is giving these laws to follow, the blessing that comes from following the law is a relationship with him. And the curse that comes from not following the law is the loss of relationship with him. So uh, I want to—I kind of want to just flesh that that out for just a second. Um, a good example would be, and I heard this from uh, Tim Keller, great preacher. Um, he gave this example. So say there's a couple who are dating, um, and they're getting serious, and they sit down and um, they kind of just talk about where their life's going to go and what they're going to do as they get more serious. And so the woman looks at the man and says, listen, I, I just need you to understand this. I hate smoking. I hate the smell of it. I hate the effects of it. I hate, I hate what it does. I hate the money you have to spend on it. Smoking, everything about it, I hate it. I can't stand it. And the man looks at her and he goes, you know, I'm really glad you told me that. Thank you. Um, 
I'm still going to smoke. In fact, I'm going to smoke five packs a day, and um, I'm going to blow it in your face, and you're going to enjoy it, and that's just what I'm going to do. So the woman looks at him and continues to go on and says, okay, well, I know we both make a lot of money, I, you know, and together we will make a bunch of money. And when we live our life together, I want to live well under our means and give a lot of money away. I want to give it to charities. I want to give it to foundations. I want to be a good philanthropist. I want to be a very generous person with all this money we're going to make. So the man looks at her and says, yeah, you know, I understand that. Um, but I want all the really nice toys, and I want a really nice house, and I want to... I want everything that's great. I want this toy, and I want that toy, and I want this, and I want that. And, and even if it means I have to go into debt, and we have to get credit cards, and we have to, you know, whatever that means, I'm going to do this. We're going to spend all the money I want to spend. And so this kind of talk goes back and forth between the woman and the man. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat humorous, and this probably isn't the best example. But um, then the man, after the whole conversation's over, he looks at her and he goes, okay, I'm really glad we had this talk. Now, I love you. Will you marry me? <laughs> no, um, obviously. And see, there's, there's something in there that points back to the law and, and Scripture because when Christ gave us the law, anytime, or God gave us the law, anytime we're in relationship with somebody, there's laws. That there are certain things that we do and we don't do to continue being in a relationship with this person. So the man smoking and um, using all their money and doing all these things was breaking the law that the woman was having so that he could no longer have a relationship with her. And when Christ and God gave us a law, the curse that comes from not following the law is that loss of relationship with God. And the blessing that comes with following the law is a relationship with God. And the thing is, is that that's what we're all created for. So that's what we're all searching for, and that's what we all want. <clears throat> but the law can't bring us the blessing because we can't follow it. So when Christ became a curse, what he is saying is that Christ on the cross lost his relationship with the Father, with God the Father. In essence, the blessed became a curse so that the cursed might be blessed. And it isn't that he literally became a sinner, because on the cross, when the, when the thief looks at him on the cross and says, give me grace, you know, I'm a sinner, I understand it, you are the Son of God, Christ doesn't look at him and say, I don't care. Screw you, you're going to hell. I, you know, He didn't become a sinner at that point, he didn't hate that person. Rather, he showed him love and mercy. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not that Christ literally became a sinner, but that he was treated as if he was the sinner. And the irony is in this is that Christ was in no way a sinner, that Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, that Christ lived up to the law perfectly, that he did every single thing required of the law, even to the spirit of it, and did it perfect. And yet he came down, he got on that cross, he took our place and gave us his righteousness so that he might be treated like the lawbreaker. That he might be the one that loses a relationship with God so that we might have a relationship with God. When Christ gets on that cross, for the first time in Scripture, you see him cry out to God rather than Father. Every other time in Scripture, when, God, when Jesus refers to God, he refers to him as Father, Holy Father, 
um, blessed Father, our Father, your Father. But when he gets on that cross, Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not his Father anymore. He's lost that relationship. He lost that on the cross. And this is the piece of the puzzle to the gospel that you must, must understand. This is, this is the essence of the gospel. That there is no atonement without this point. That Christ came down and he gave us his name and moved us into the Father's house so that we could be sons and daughters of the Father. And he moved himself into the slave's quarter and became the cursed one and the one who lived as a slave. Luther says, uh, says it in this way in speaking of this text uh, in his commentary. He says, our, mer- our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, and so to be holden under the same that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent his Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief that hanged upon the cross, and briefly, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. Christ on the cross became our substitute, and the gospel exists for this reason. He didn't come just to be our example or just to, to bring forgiveness because with, with just an example and with just forgiveness, we, we don't have atonement. See, if Christ just came to be our example, then all we have is somebody to follow and rules to follow that we will still not measure up to and we'll still feel bad or we'll still feel really arrogant and proud that we did follow it. And in both ways, we fall into sin. And if he came just to to give us forgiveness, then all we have is the forgiveness at the time. What if you sin again? Do you need to be forgiven again? Was that forgiveness for all time? Or, you know, am I really found righteous? Because now all my deeds are still bad. If all he brought was forgiveness, my deeds are all still bad. I'm not found righteous. I'm still living by the law. Christ came as our substitute. And he took our place and our death and our sins and the curse that we might have his place, we might have his righteousness, and we might have the blessing of a life with God for eternity. So let me ask you this question. Have you been dealing with suffering a lot lately? Have you been suffering a lot? Have Has there been something in your life that you just can't seem to get past that is weighing you down that you just keep beating yourself elf, yourself up over? Is it some sin that you continue to commit? Is it something that you just can't get past? You need Christ as your substitute. You need to have faith in the fact that Christ came down, took that sin and that punishment and that guilt that you feel for the sin and the, and, and the, the suffering that you're going through. That's not punishment. Christ took that on the cross as your substitute. That's not guilt You have no guilt no more. You have conviction because Christ took your guilty plea on the cross. You were found justified because of Christ on the cross. My plea is that you stop looking to your own actions and look to Christ. If Christ is your substitute, he took the full punishment on the cross. 
He took it and he paid for it. Stop trying to take control. Stop trying to make it something of yourself. Stop trying to make it something you do because the fact of the matter is is that it is all about Christ. I have to stop taking these, these sins that are weighing me down, these things that I keep doing and I keep punishing myself over, and I have to let them go because it's not punishment anymore. Christ took that. I can't pay for my own sins. Christ did that. I don't need to feel like I need to beat myself up over something I did. Christ did that. It is always, totally, solely, only completely about Jesus and what he did on the cross. It has nothing to do with what we do here other than having faith in the fact that he did it. We're now able to live in faith. We're now able to live repentant lives. We're able to say, I I messed up. I need your forgiveness, Christ. I need your righteousness. We're able to repent because we don't have to measure up. We don't have to do it on our own. We're able to live and do the things that we want to do to the glory of God, the things and the desires of our heart to the glory of God because God took all our sin on the cross and gave us his righteousness. He changed our hearts and we can live to his glory doing the things we love to do because we have faith, not because of the law. John Stott, in in this book, Cross of Christ, he sums up the entirety of this passage, uh, the entirety of what this means, and very well in this statement. He says, The concept of substitution may be said, then, to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts the penalties that belong to man alone. My prayer is that each one of us take a moment and really think about why we live our lives. Do we live them out of a self-reformation, self-sustaining, self-righteous bearing actions that we think we can we can pay and atone for our own sins? Do we live out of that or do we live out of the righteousness that God gave us on the cross? Do we live understanding that he substituted himself for us on the cross that we might have the blessing of the Spirit and salvation and relationship with God forever? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, We thank you so much for the opportunity to, God, just to, to be blessed and have a relationship with you. We thank you for coming down from your throne and the glories of heaven and the worship you were receiving to earth where you were mocked and you were spit on and you were cursed and you were beaten and you were crucified. God, and you left all that and you came down that you might identify with us and that you might die in our place for our sins, that you might substitute yourself in my place, God. And that this is the essence of the gospel and what it is to bring. That the gospel shows us that 
we can't do it on our own, but you did it for us. That we can't live up to be righteous, but you gave us your righteousness. And that we don't have to live up to the standard because you, Christ, were the standard. God, I pray that you help us to repent, especially myself, God, of religious actions, things that we do, God, to gain your approval, to gain your love, to gain your affection, to gain some kind of justification for ourselves. I pray that you help us repent of that and run to you, Jesus, looking to the cross for our satisfaction, for our joy, for our righteousness, God. I pray that we're all just wrecked by the gospel and what it has to bring. Uh, Jesus, we love you so much. We rejoice in the fact that we can worship you and we can love you and we can live in relationship with you and that we can pursue the things that we love to the glory of God. Um, for all times, because you satisfied us on the cross. Uh, It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.